Welcome to the Heart-Centered Therapist Podcast, the podcast created for you, the therapist who leads with your heart and loves serving your clients. I'm Cindy Gozanski, your host. I know that being a heart-centered therapist is immensely rewarding and powerful and intensely challenging and difficult. We're on this journey together. My mission is to help you continue loving your work as a therapist, surviving being a therapist, and feeling more connected as a therapist. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Heart-Centered Therapist podcast. I'm so excited you're here today. Today, I want to introduce you to Dr. Mary Barbera. Dr. Mary Barbera fell into the autism world in 1999 when her firstborn son, Lucas, was diagnosed. Since then, Mary transformed from a confused and overwhelmed parent in a registered nurse to a board-certified behavior analyst, PhD, and best-selling author. Mary launched her first online course in early 2015 and later built additional courses and a membership program to help both parents and autism professionals. Mary's latest book, Turn Autism Around, that's also the name of her podcast. She has online courses, a weekly podcast, and social media posts, all of which have helped millions of parents and professionals worldwide start turning things around for young children with early signs of autism and older autistic children who are struggling with talking, tantrums, eating, sleeping, potty training, and much more. So we have a rock star in the house, my friends. I'm so incredibly fortunate to have Mary here with us, bringing a wealth of expertise, both personal and professional, and a heart dedicated to making a difference. So welcome, and let's get ready for an inspiring conversation about autism intervention. Hello, Mary. Hi, Cindy. Thank you for having me on. Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm so excited. There's so much to share. You have amazing wealth of resources. You are an author, a highly esteemed trainer. You have so much to offer, but I always love starting by asking my guests about my mission, being heart-centered, and what does heart-centered mean to you? Yeah, it's a great question. And I don't think I've ever gotten that question before. But I think just overall, in the year 2000, I heard a presenter by the name of Glenn Latham. He had his PhD in special education. And I heard him speak at an autism conference. And he basically, with one hour, really changed my my life and my focus. But he he his mantra was, we all need eight positives to every negative. And he proved with research over the decades in the 70s and 80s, starting that kids in special education received a lot more negatives than positives. You know, it didn't have to be people yelling at them, but, you know, now I told you to stand in line, keep your hands to yourself, you know, all those negative, 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 you know, threats and punishment. And he really felt strongly that everybody needs, you know, some people say five positives to every negative, but his his mantra was eight positives to every negative. So I think with that in mind, I go about my day trying to be as positive as possible. And I think that is the probably the whole crux of heart-centered therapy and heart-centered interactions with anybody with or without disabilities or mental health issues. And the other thing that I've learned over the years as a behavior analyst is if you see problem behaviors, whether you're, you know, you're talking about an adult working at Walmart or a child in special education, you know, if you see problem behaviors, the demands are probably too high and or reinforcement is too low. And we really need to flip that and make it a lot more positive. And there's probably, you know, prerequisite skills and things that are missing. So in my work as a trainer, the idea that the student is never wrong, you know, if the student isn't learning or making progress, then you're probably, your demands are too high, you're missing prerequisite skills, and your reinforcement is probably too low. So so I, I hope that answers kind of where I'm at. Maybe it's a way different answer than you're used to, but but with all my hats on, 
registered nurse, behavior analyst, mom to a son with autism, mom to a typical son, online course creator, author. I I think that's, you know, just be, be kind, be nice. Realize that everybody's coming forth with their own backgrounds and their own baggage and their own learning histories and their own reinforcement and their own history of probably too many negatives and try to flip that around. Mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, this is such a, a great and exciting answer because we don't often have somebody like you who wears so many different hats and can speak to different like niches within the listenership. And so it's it's actually really great. And I love that you you look at the way you can have compassion for somebody else um, based on, you know, they might not be getting the reinforcements they need or or their positions, you know, with without adequate support and bringing in the positives that inform our personal, our personal world and our professional world. It's, it's so important. That really does come, come from the heart. That's, I think that's amazing. And we're really, we're lucky to have you because we don't often get somebody who can talk from the behavior analyst position, which is so key for parents and therapists who are dealing with, like you said, somebody who has autism or is not typical, whether we're talking about pure autism or a speech and language delay or something else. And so it's really, really important to have you here and just like start from the beginning. You said you're an autism mom, and then you're also a mom of a typical kid and everything else. So what about like going back to when, you know, you were a mom to Lucas, what happened? Yeah. So, like? yeah. so I uh, had a master's degree in nursing administration from Penn and I worked as a nurse manager. I married Charles. So I'm st- we're still married. And he was a ER emergency medicine resident at oh, wow. the same hospital at Jefferson hospital in Philadelphia. So um, I was pregnant when we moved back to my hometown of Reading, Pennsylvania, pregnant with Lucas. Um, so I got done my job, moved. He started as an attending. And so we were really excited about the first baby, of course, and had Lucas. He seemed to be developing great, actually ahead of schedule. You know, um, at eight months old, people told me that they went to play play dates with us and went home and were like, oh my God, like Lucas Barbera is just like really amazing. Like mm-hmm. he would sing songy games and he would say hi to people uh, at eight months of age, like language wise and social, he was really social. So he started to regress when I got pregnant, when I was pregnant with Spencer and they're only 18 months apart. Um, but it was, you know, it was subtle. It wasn't like one morning he regressed. It was, you know, I was pregnant and he was suddenly becoming a picky eater, not doing the, you know, like, why isn't he saying hi to the camera anymore? And, Mm -hmm. and just subtly subtle differences. But then, you know, well, each child's different. They go through phases. You're weaning off baby food. You're weaning breastfeeding. You know, it's like, okay. Nothing to raise a big flag. It's winter time. I, you know, so after the baby was born, my husband started to get concerned. Um, You know, of course, then the baby got RSV and Lucas got RSV, RSV right oh. away. So we were like sick and watching Barney and I was just trying to like, and then, but my husband was concerned um, because Lucas's reaction to the baby was like completely clueless. Like we could have literally brought home a plastic baby doll for as mm-hmm. much as yeah. he was aware. And I thought, well, he's only 18. I was just turning 18 months and, you know, babies vary. But he, in his work as an emergency medicine physician, saw other 15-month-olds, 18-month-olds, at least patting the mommy's belly and mm-hmm. playing right. with the baby a little bit aware. So it was after Spencer's first well visit, he he told me when I was taking the baby, can you ask him how many words Lucas should have? So I asked the doctor and Lucas was 20, 21 months of age. So the doctor told me 20 words or 25 words or something like that. So I can't, I'm driving home and it's, it's a short drive. It's like 10 minutes. And I'm like, E-I-E-I-O is five words. Like I was 
grasping yeah. at straws. Oh, he God. had this little phrase that he would say, please do not feed the ducks quack quack. Like, but it was delayed echolalia, mm. which was just a script, a sing songy script that he would say. But like literally, I was counting hoping for any words. words or sounds or word approximations. And some of these words I didn't hear for like a month. And I was counting them. So I got home and the baby did fine at the well visit. And then Charlie said, well, how, what did he say about Lucas's words? And I said, oh, he said he has, you know, he needed 20, about 25 words. And then Charlie's like, but he doesn't have 25 words. And I was like, oh, no, I counted. He does. And Charlie's like, so you don't think that he could have autism? And I like still remember my old house with the blue carpet. I was just like, what? And um, literally in that moment, I was just so shocked and like hadn't hadn't ever thought that there was anything wrong, let alone autism. You know, this is before the Internet. This is before Facebook or anything. And the rate of autism back then was thought to be like one in 500. So you didn't really hear about it much. And so I really was just totally shut him down. And, and then, you know, come the spring, Lucas looked better. I mean, he had signs, but then at the same time, like we enrolled him in typical preschool, you know, and taught two-year-old preschool. He went in, he wasn't like biting anybody. He wasn't doing anything weird. It didn't have any separation anxiety, but then by mid-year, the teacher and the director, and he had started speech therapy, which in the beginning, the, the reports were like, well, we have, you know, really good prognosis that this, but it was both an expressive and a receptive delay. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the real, you know, thing is that now I'm thinking back, you know, if I had the information in my newest book, Turn Autism Around, which is for toddlers, for for me back in the late 1990s when my husband first met. Which did know, not exist. If I had this information back then, I really, really believe that Lucas would be graduated from college driving. I mean, he would still have autism probably, <laughs> but I had no idea what to do. And it was the day before he was three, he was diagnosed and he was diagnosed, even though he had completed a whole year by himself in two-year-old preschool, he was diagnosed with moderate severe autism. Mm. And even my husband thought it was going to be mild autism. Um, So then it was moderate severe. And then I felt extra guilty. And I'm like, oh, but I read a book and you can make this better. And, you know, kids can become you know, at the time there was a lot of talk about becoming indistinguishable and really, and he's like, yeah, like he didn't say like, if you would have brought him in when he was 21 months, but that's what he said, basically. Mm -hmm. Like now it was, it was a little too late for that, but I still was like, I felt very guilty about my denial. And I thought, well, you know, some of these kids in the original studies to show, the treatment outcomes were three. Lucas just turned three. I was going to just try my best to turn things around as much as possible. And, and we did. He made progress, but he still, he's 27 years old now. He's still affected by moderate to severe autism. He still has, he has a mild intellectual disability. He needs 24 seven care. But then I became a professional and I have worked with kids along the way who have done really well. I mean, not Lucas has done well. Yeah. Um, for him, you know, with his, you know, but you've like, also shortened the curve, the curve or the journey to treatment because of being yeah. able to help parents much earlier. Like it was such a long protracted journey for you to yeah. figure out, to get Lucas, the diagnosis, to, to give the parents tools and strategies for you and your husband. Right. And so now this is what you're helping other parents and families do like start to see what's happening for their, their kids when they're little, when they're babies and toddlers, and then give them ways that they can start to make a difference, bring in those positives, right? Just like we said at the beginning and break everything down. And, you know, and unfortunately now the rate is, it was one in 500. Now the rate is like one in 36 worse for boys, like one in 24. 
Now the waiting list for an evaluation take nine months to two years. And so now there's less denial, less stigma, more information, but there's almost too much information out there. There's there's reams and reams of information. Like I have one of my online participants, Ruth, who joined my course last fall, but when she was going to join my course, she came to like a you know, Q&A call or whatever I was doing. And she got on and she was all excited. She's like, I've listened to every single one of your podcasts and I made some gains with sleep and potty and, but my child's still not talking. And I'm like, you have to join the course. And I calculated like my episodes used to be like 45 minutes long. And I calculated that just in those 200 episodes, let alone other things that are out there that she's watched or it was 165 hours of content that she she took in and tried to make some gains. But it's complicated when you're trying to change all of these behaviors at the same time. You're trying to reduce problem behaviors. You're trying to increase talking. You're trying to increase picky eating. You're trying to improve, you know, going to the doctor without screaming. You're trying to improve all these things. And it's like, podcast listening or reading my book, while it's great to take action, you really have to get the information in a broken down way and get community support so that when you get stuck, when they throw Mr. Potato Head across the room, you're not like, oh, shoot, I don't know what to do. Right. The community support is so huge. And then chunking down the learning, that's important for all of us. And you know that because of your training. Right. And so there's there's such a parallel process here. Thank you so much for sharing this this vulnerable side of of your journey and your family's journey, Mary. It's it's really gonna help normalize for what some people are going through that they feel like they're the only ones, you know, like how could they talk about this? I feel so guilty, whatever. So thank you for that. Applied behavior analyst analysis, what is that? The science of it. I know it it could take like volumes and volumes, but just just to kind of give us a working understanding. Yeah. So your listeners are mostly therapists, right? So they've heard of ABA, Applied Behavior Analysis, and they may hear that ABA is bad. They, there's a lot of controversy. There wasn't the controversy back in the late 1990s. That's what was and still is the most proven path to turn things around, whatever that means. But in the last couple of decades, especially with social media and kids progressing, lots more kids were diagnosed officially and progressing, you know, that autism is a huge spectrum, right? So you have with or without treatment, you have people on the high end of the spectrum that are working in, in jobs and creative jobs and engineering jobs and whatever jobs, you know, maybe they were never diagnosed. Maybe they were diagnosed in middle school or high school. Maybe they are self-diagnosed or diagnosed as an adult, but you have these, a subset of people, and we're not sure, I'm not sure what percentage of the spectrum is in this camp, but they're, they're able to advocate for themselves. They're able to go online and advocate for themselves. And over the years, you know, just like anything, medicine was a lot different back two, three, four decades ago. What was what was kosher to to do research on was mm-hmm. has changed, right? People used to spank their kids, and that was that wasn't child abuse back then. You know, so things have changed. So obviously, the first ABA programs for kids with autism they involved like some punishment and things like that, that, you know, don't look good and aren't good. And that's why I think my ABA approach is different because of my nursing and my mom background and, Mm -hmm. you know, my positive background, child-friendly background, and there's no reason to put punishment in place. But anyway, it's morphed in, but the subset of self-advocates, they don't like the sound of ABA. So ABA programs for kids with autism are done in different ways. Mm-hmm. But then there's the ABA science, applied behavior analysis, which is the science of changing behavior, socially significant or important behavior. That's all it is as a science. So 
when people say they don't like ABA or they hate ABA or ABA is abuse, well, they're talking about a program Program. based on the science because the science is always working. Your listeners would not be listening. You would not be talking to me if there was not some reinforcing value in it all. I wouldn't have shown up. I wouldn't have an online business. You wouldn't be talking to me. Your listeners wouldn't be listening if it wasn't information that that was appealing to them, right? So the science is always working. And if you reinforce a behavior, it, it will maintain or go up. And it's sometimes it's not a person reinforcing a behavior. It's a it's just a contingency that's happening, you know, a fire alarm going off or some noise or some event or it's it's inherent you know, in our environment it, and in it, our world as humans, how we interact right. with each other. And and it's important to also say with humans, yes, and it's all based on animal research, mm. pigeons and rats and and so are pharmaceuticals tested on animals first. And so are, you know, um, everything's tested because we are animals. So people say, well, I don't like to be, I don't want to treat my child like a dog or I don't want to, you know. The first off, pr- you're not advocating that. <laughs> no, but the principles of reinforcement, punishment, mm-hmm. shaping, extinction, like chaining have all been proven and tested out with animals. Mm-hmm. And and I'm sure half your audience has animals, has right. has dogs and cats. Exactly. And we want a positive pet-friendly approach to training them. I don't advocate for punishment for pets or electric collars and that sort of thing because I don't own any pets. I don't know it really much about animals at all. But I know a lot about training and the Mm -hmm. training are very similar. Uh, We want to be positive. And that's all all it is, is we look at the science of ABA. The turn autism around approach is four steps, four proven steps, assessment, planning, intervention or teaching and using easy data to evaluate. The reason they're proven steps is it's the same four steps of the scientific method. Assess, plan, intervene, evaluate, right? And it's a cycle. Right. And so that brings the science right back into it. And so we have this like historical prejudice about ABA as as a program or as something done on animals or whatever. But what we're really looking at is the science. And if you think about great modern day authors who are talking about habit stacking, that's a behaviorist approach. Right. There's all kinds of things that that we're doing now that we're encouraged to do that fall into the science. And, you know, video games and, you know, dings or likes and, you know, all that stuff, sports betting, like everything is marketing cereal boxes with toys in them. Like this isn't it it is everywhere. Mm hmm. In everything we do is the science of ABA. It's like physics. You reinforce a behavior, it's going to go up or maintain. Like, But I, I agree with people who say this kind of therapy, and it doesn't have to be ABA. It could be speech therapy. It could be a psychologist. It could be, you know, these people aren't trying to do bad things. It's just maybe they don't know a better way. And I wish that everybody would know about my course and my book and my podcast from the get-go from the time the child is little. But there are still a lot of ABA programs and a lot of speech therapists and a lot of psychologists who are recommending still threats and punishment and timeout and response cost and and things that are are not even a good (laughs) band-aid. Yeah. Right. And, and so that's that. And that's not the quality type of autism therapy that you're talking about. And if if people could access your resources, even during the time that they're waiting for services to start, which could be nine to 12 months, they get the head start or two yeah. years. And, and that's to, the critical yeah. time. You know, as a, as a nurse, I always worked in the neuro field and, you know, with brain injuries and strokes and heart attacks, you think about the golden hour and the golden, the first year after 
you know, an injury, a head injury or a stroke. We've got to turn things around as quickly as possible. As soon as there's a delay, and we have 50% of our online participants in the toddler course do not have an autism diagnosis. So they are being proactive and smart about getting in, finding out what's working in terms of increased talking, decreased tantrums, improved eating, sleeping, potty training. These are all just general parenting techniques that right. work amazingly well if there's no delays. Um, right. They still work well kids. for all kids. They will work well for everybody. And you, they're a lot harder to put in place, especially for older kids who've had other therapies that are, they're, they're more resistant because they just, you, you know, just like everybody you see, you know, the older you get, the more probably trauma oh. that you've experienced um, Absolutely. in treatment, trauma in your family life. And then that's hard to undo in addition to all your developmental delays and, and, yeah, and or expecting that, you know, the, the person you interact with is going to respond negatively or reject you or you know, goes again, it goes back to the importance of those positives and what supports are needed. I, I'm so glad you brought up also how the toddler course can help regular kiddos, you know, like just basic parenting. And we'll we'll list everything, but it's basically marybarbera.com and you can find everything there. Yep. Um, but Mary has like a really amazing YouTube site, YouTube uh, station. And so one of her, I was listening to a couple of her podcasts and one of her YouTube videos is called, is it speech delay or autism? Early autism signs in toddlers. It has 1.5 million views. At least that was as of this morning. Yep. It's amazing. <laughs> and you also say like, it doesn't really matter if it's speech delay or autism. Tell us about that. It really doesn't. We've had, um, many members take our course with just a speech delay. And I thought Lucas had just a speech delay when we began. And I didn't know how to, he had some words, I call them pop out words, but I didn't know how to get him talking more. I didn't know the differences between, you know, people say language, there's expressive language, and then there's receptive language. So receptive language is following directions. And then their expressive language is also, there's four elementary verbal operands. So if somebody says, my child has 10 words, I want to know, do they label things, which is attacked? Can they request things, which is really what we want? It's a manned. Mm -hmm. And can they echo? I say ball, you say ball. That's an echoic. And or can they answer questions or fill in the blank? That's an interverbal. So these four elementary verbal operands are also at play. So when you're talking about a speech delay, it's expressive and or receptive, right? So right. so that those basic things, and then we don't want a kid who's just like obsessively looking through books and saying, ball, train, truck, car, mm -hmm. and not requesting juice. I not see. requesting open to go outside. So they're not, missing like an understanding. They're missing the, the, they have the motivation to get things, but they don't know how to ask for things. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know how to ask for things, think of it, Cindy, Cindy, where you're going to a foreign country and you know, no words. Right. And you're leaving, you know, terrifying. In a, I always try to learn a few words before yeah. I go. Right. Right. So what words are you going to learn? Functional words. Thank you. Bye. Hello, please. Certain foods, uh, toilet, all those things. Right. So how, where. <laughs> right. So yeah. really what you need or you need your Help. the things that you're going to need. Mm -hmm. Those are right. the words you're going to. So I actually, I would agree with different foods that you would need or even just eat, mm -hmm. you know, and we have the the for, good fortune to also have apps where we can translate and have that ability. But we would need toilet, like you said. Mm -hmm. We would need um, water, different foods, taxi, maybe. So, but if you could do please, that wouldn't really help you. 
Right. right? That's true. So if you just go up and you say, please, or you say more, which is right. the most common sign and word. That right. We're doing sign here. Teach, yeah. Which is, I don't agree with. Mm-hmm. We need, you know, to get functional words that the child can ask for with the item in sight. So now the item is in sight and you can request it. So a lot of my early learner programs is the shoebox program, for instance. You get a shoebox, you cut a slit into it. For kids that have autism or not, who have little to no speech, right? Then you get a shoebox with a slit into it. You have pictures of mommy, daddy, spot the dog, goldfish crackers, juice, whatever. Um, You hold it up. You say, mommy, and you bring it a little closer, mommy. And the child might say, mama. You give the child the the picture as soon as they say it, or if they don't say it after three times, you give it to them anyway. All they have to do is put the picture in the shoe box. So it's cause and effect. Mm -hmm. It gets active engagement. You're not throwing a bunch of words at them. Now, if you were in a foreign country and I said, ooby, 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 and that was water, he'd be like, I'm going to remember that, ooby. Right. That is amazing. Brilliant. Uh, So what these early learner programs do, we do the same thing with puzzles, potato head, shoebox, is it combines, it's part manned because the child wants to take the picture and put it in eventually. It's part tact because they can see it. It's part echoic because I'm saying the word. There's repeating it. And it's part just sitting, attending, joint attention. And so I don't get very technical in like discriminative stimulus and extinction. And, you know, parents don't need that. Just use the one word times three strategy. Use these easy things to get language going to take baseline assessment. So you really know where you're starting. And then in many cases, language just explodes. So there really doesn't matter. I mean, Speech delay versus autism. Chapter two of Turn Autism Around is all about the early signs. Um, I pretty much for an 18 month or two year old will look for pointing. Pointing with your index finger is really important by 18 months and two years of age. Pointing to show you things and to request is important. And is that considered like expressive communication? Or well, it's, it's a nonverbal. It's a gesture. It's a gesture. Okay. Um, a nonverbal gesture, but. It is um, important that pointing develops um, by 18 months or two. And then the other thing I look for, so kids with autism who are going to get a diagnosis tend to not point and instead tend to, you know, there's bubbles here that they want. So they tend to take your hand and hand lead to the bubbles. And so lack of pointing with hand leading is particularly leading me to think that it's more autism. But in my online course, I have a bonus on how to teach pointing. So you can teach any of this. Mm -hmm. So there's no reason to sit and wait and worry, whether it's speech delay or autism. And that's the the point of the 10 minute uh, video that's gotten, you know, 10 times more views than anything else I've ever created. But it's on YouTube. And you can always search Mary Barbera, plus the topic. And it'll, it'll lead you like biting. You know, I have a great uh, video on that. Is it speech delay or autism, tantrums, anything? You have a family in denial. I have videos on that. Yeah. Yeah. It's that's, and I just love that example of the the shoebox exercise, because I know there are some parents and clinicians who will be able to just go right to that and try it and see, you know, or use it like with whoever it's so important. And it just shows the easy accessibility. That's one of the beautiful things about not just your book, but your programs. And it's trying to help parents not overthink this, but just do what's going to be best for their kids and then for their families, because this has got to put so much stress to that lack of knowing, like you described with your own personal journey, put so much stress on the family and then on the marriage, on the siblings, right? Like, I'm sure you've seen a lot of that. And it sounds like, Mary, you also have created some community to support parents and families going through this. Yeah, I think that's, you know, 
really important part of the course. You get the course and the community because, you know, I have traveled all over the world speaking about autism. I've gone to Australia three times and France and the UK and Germany and and all over the United States as well. But what would happen is, you know, they would pay me a lot of money to go out there and pay my expenses and people would fly in from different countries and they would pay a lot of money and stay in hotels. And And I would speak, the last time I went to Australia, I only spoke for like an hour keynote for all that expense and time. And then parents would, you know, see my videos and then they would go home and try this even the shoebox. I mean, it's not like a slam dunk, even though it sounds very simple. What happens if the kid then becomes obsessive about it? Mm-hmm. Uh, what it, what happens if the kid throws, a, you know, throws the cards or starts chewing the cards? Like there was no way for people to go like, I'm confused because like Johnny wasn't throwing potato head in Mary's videos when I saw her present them but they can literally step by step. And we've, we've built it in where we tell you, do not start table time. Do not start the shoebox program until you get through module three, because mm-hmm. there's a lot of pitfalls that we want to make sure that you're going, you're pairing things up and you're going uh, systematically and you're the making system. sure. Yeah. yeah making the environment sure. you said that's so important the type of learning environment that you set up and that is aligned for the child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it's based on their particular strengths and needs. Cause you might have a 14 month old or an 18 month old who's not talking at all, which isn't that un- alarming, right. Um, that, you know, is a great sleeper, but is a extremely picky eater or, um, or you might have a four-year-old who is, you know, talking in little phrases or, has been taught colors and now is obsessive over colors, but can't tolerate getting their hair cut. So we teach you how to assess your child or client and then make a plan based on their unique strengths and needs. So you don't have to all be at the same level. You can go on your own. And we've had participants in my online courses, which I'm very proud of over the past eight and a half years um, from over 100 countries. Oh, wow. So it is very much, uh, you know, multilingual in there. Everybody is, you know, there are, there are many, many parents in there and professionals who they themselves speak three languages, you know, um, there's a lot of conversation about teaching, um, two languages, three languages, how to, how to get school, you know, on the same page, et cetera. Yeah. Well, that's such such a beautiful thing to be proud of and to create this type of resource and community where other people don't feel so alone when they're going through this or so singled out, you know, um, because it can be negative to also, you know, get feedback from your preschool or from your daycare, right? Like even that isn't always positive, you know, because the preschools are overworked and understaffed and, you know, the, the parents and it, don't always it, know what to do. It might not be a good fit for the preschool. Like I do have a video. If you search Mary Barbera kicked out of preschool, oh. um, you know, I have a video on just about everything. So, <laughs> and, and it doesn't have to be autism. It could be, you know, yeah, I you don't have a video on marriage and yes, I have, I have podcasts on marriage. What, marriage couples therapists need to know about autism. I did a a talk on that and that's a podcast. Um, yeah, I have, uh, lots of things on grandparenting, on siblings, on problem behaviors, you name it. It's probably there. Yeah. Right. I think it's really cool that you also provide this training for clinicians, whether it's, you know, um, certified ABA clinicians, because they don't always get the same practical information in their training programs. And I certainly see it from the therapist perspective of what interns get in terms of counseling skills and actual practical application of that. And so I imagine you're giving the clinicians much more hands-on understanding and experience. Yeah, I am. And, you know, we train 
parents and professionals together. And I think the key role of the therapist, no matter if they're a ABA therapist or psychologist or a marriage counselor, is to support the family, but also to learn these techniques because um, you might be out there giving, you know, not, I don't want to say the wrong advice, but advice like take away the electronics or, you know, he's got to learn. And it's like that threats of punishment and punishment will almost always backfire. And there are proactive ways to, especially for kids that are not conversational, that don't have the skills. You know, I'm not an expert on kids with super high functioning autism. I mean, I've worked with many, but I don't have a course for them because it is so, you know, with, with your clients, with mental, mental health issues, you know, a lot of high functioning, um, autistic people who are fully conversational, they do have a higher incidence of other mental health disorders, such as obsessive compulsive and, Mm -hmm. um, ADHD and bipolar and depression and, and maybe, maybe the children who can't communicate also have, you know, those issues, but they can't, they can't, you know, converse and tell us exactly, but it doesn't matter. Like I am so not about, well, that's because they have a diagnosis of, you know, ODD or OCD. No, that it's behavior and good behaviors can be increased and problem behaviors can be decreased. And regardless of the diagnosis, the medication they're on, or even the family background. I mean, there are certainly harder, harder situations in many cases where, you know, you have the family that has no time and no resources and no breaks and no ability to pay babysitters or, you know, no cars, no computers. Like, I'm not saying everybody can turn this around at the same rate, Mm -hmm. but if you have a highly motivated parent with enough resources to be able to uh, dive in and enough motivation to really, and enough hope that they truly can make a difference. I don't think there's, it's ever too early or too late to try. Oh, yeah. And you provide so much hope. I think, I think that's key, Mary, you really provide so much hope. And when um, somebody lands on your website, they feel that hope and they, they see the possibilities of change and, you know, early intervention is so important and it's not too late. I, I love how you say that, but we've, found more and more like the sooner the better. And so you're really focused on helping parents of especially young kids Mm -hmm. to try to help them way sooner and have a a much more like fulfilled fulfillment in their lives. So much more satisfaction as kids and parents together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wanted for you to just say something about this because I thought it was really important for our listeners, whether they're parents or clinicians. I was listening to one of your podcasts and you were talking about how important it is for somebody, maybe it's the mom or usually it's the mom or for somebody to like kind of put their hand up and say, okay, I'm it. I'm the one who's going to be like captain or quarterback or whatever you call it because Mm -hmm. there's such a team involved. And this just seems to me so important in terms of like creating a good care model. If you could just mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about like, what is this notion of captain? Yep. Captain of the ship, I call them. Okay. Usually one parent, usually the mom, but I have had grandmothers and dads. Um, we just ran a very uh, low end five days to more talking challenge where we got a great grandfather who wow. took the course And he became the captain of the ship and developed an amazing assessment and plan and a whole training protocol for his whole family, which I was like, oh my goodness. I don't even know that I've ever seen a grandfather, let alone a great grandfather. Oh, great grandpa. That's awesome. (laughs) So it's really just one person to say, you know, I'm going to coordinate this. And it was me, but I also had 
a great background for it because I had a master's degree in nursing administration. I was a nurse manager. I was involved with hiring, firing, training. Um, so it it came easier to me. I, I've always, as a kid, been a great delegator. Like I have a PhD in leadership now. My dissertation was all on training people. So I think we need to, as clinicians, and that's most of your audience, we need to empower parents, especially a parent that you're training, to to take the lead. Because I think a lot of parents are made to feel like I need to leave it to the professionals. I need to take my seat in the back of the bus and at the end of the table and not be involved. But the parent is the one with the most motivation. They have the most vested interest in in making sure this turns out as well as it can. Um, and we don't have a crystal ball to look forward or backward, but I really do believe that kids do best when at least one parent is super involved and coordinates and doesn't doesn't let their child be go to situations like, I mean, I've had stories where, you know, you know, Susie Q is driving 70 minutes away to a speech therapy appointment because she finally got off the waiting list and insurance is going to pay. So she's got to drive them there. And then she gets there. She's in my course, right? So she's already learning all this stuff and she's learning to be positive and she's learning to not let kids cry it out. And Mm. um, she gets there and they're like, oh, our policy is you need to wait in the waiting room. For a two-year-old, we're going to take your child from you. The child can't talk. You wouldn't leave them alone with a doctor or a therapist or anybody, an audiologist. I mean, where would you leave a two-year-old by themselves without an advocate? The child's crying. Oh, it's just heartbreaking. And then, you know, parents are like, um, you know, parents need to know that they need to speak up. Yeah. And they need to be like, no, I'm not. I'm coming along, my child's two or three or four or eight, and they can't talk or, you know, not just to prevent abuse, but to see what they're doing. Are they on the same page? Are they going to do carrier phrases, which I don't recommend? Are they going to do use multiple controls? So you get, you know, even with my son's experience with speech therapy great speech therapist. I was able to go in the room. I didn't know what I was doing. So it all looked great, except for in hindsight, Mm. we went in and, you know, she did bubbles and stuff, which was, you know, really great manding, Mm -hmm. echoing, you know, he wanted it. He liked it. He was happy. And then, okay, all done bubbles. And then she would pull out things like some versus one versus all which I don't even think at 27 years of age, he he would know how to do those tasks. She'd pull out, is this an apple? Is this, she was working on yes, no tax, you know, which is a technical term. He didn't learn till he was like eight, till I figured out how to teach him. Luckily for us, Lucas was had a, a laid back personality and he mm. didn't really care that the bubbles were getting put away. But a lot of kids do. Right. And so- We need to make sure that all speech therapy for two-year-old kids who are not yet talking revolves around keeping them happy, keeping them engaged, having that multiple control, you know, and it's a waste of time and money to drive them anywhere where you're not going to get a positive result. Um, And people aren't going to be willing to listen to you as the captain to say what's, what works for your child. Because you still know your child best. Yep. And, and you, you still have the be. best, the best, his best interest at heart always. And, um, you know, I, I remember one of my early days working in schools with the Verbal Behavior Project of Pennsylvania. And this 100 pound eight year old was laying on the floor screaming. And I was just like, you know, I was a new BCBA. There was a new consultation. And, you know, and after that whole, you know, I was kind of told to stand in the back that I was just there for language, not for problem behavior. And I'm like, okay, we got some problems, you know? And I, so I said to the teacher, after everything was calmed down, I said, 
you know, I'm really concerned about that event. You know, he's eight years old, he's a hundred pounds. And, and I think Lucas was probably 12 or 14 at the time. And I said, but he's going to be, you know, 16 and 200 pounds. And like, you're, you're not going to be able to, you know, then we're really going to have trouble. And, and she looked at me and she said, well, he's not going to be my student then. And I'm like, oh my goodness, wrong answer. Right. So the parent is going to be the parent and we need to have positive things going on at every step. Right. It's a great That's example. why I really think that the parent, when it, whenever possible, should be the captain of the ship, mm-hmm. you know, and if the parent doesn't have the ability to, for whatever reason, a grandparent, a caregiver, a nanny, or maybe a teacher or a therapist could fill that role. Mm-hmm. Just really not sure how that person would be paid to fill that role. Right, right. And and ideally, though, we want to empower the parent, right? I'm thinking about, you know, a BCBA who goes into the home, or maybe it's a therapist who does HCT or home visits, right? To help empower the parents that this is your responsibility. This is what's going to create attunement with you and your child that they know you're going to have their back. I mean, I remember a client who took her son, who was probably like maybe 12 to physical therapy, and they were still told to wait in the car. And that wasn't okay for the son and the mom, right? And I can't even remember the outcome, but it was not good, right? It was very distressing for mom and dad, very distressing for the kid, right? And so these are really important things that we don't want to overlook. And creating that that learning environment or the positive healing environment, therapeutic environment is, is, is key. And that's what you're really also coaching parents on to look for, um, and, and, and to create, to seek out. Yeah. Yeah. What, what do you think is most helpful for parents and professionals in terms of like burnout and self-care? Like that's kind of my last question. I know we could do a whole other podcast on it, but just from your experience. Yeah. I, I think that's one thing I've been fortunate about is I am married to a physician. I moved back to my hometown. I still have my parents who are in their mid eighties. They have been extremely helpful. So I have my, my parents were so helpful early on. My sister and brothers still live in the hometown. I have 41st cousins. I, you know, we we had a babysitting co-op. We had, you know, the pool circle and, um, and I have a typical son who is 18 months younger and he's in med school. So I always had his, you know, boy scout mom first Thursday group. And, and so in fact, we were just out last night for the first Thursday group and our boys are, you know, grown adults and, right. and Spencer's in uh fourth year med school. So he's, he's going to be a physician soon too. And I can't wait to listen to that episode where Spencer talks about being a sibling. So yeah. That's, that's a great on one. That's a great one. That. It's marybarbera.com forward slash 85, but, or you can search Mary, Aut- Mary Barbera or Mary autism right. siblings and you can find it, but that's a great episode. It's a very much a fan favorite. So I feel like I've had a ton of support. We also had au pairs live with us for mm-hmm. um, eight years when my boys were little so that I could write my first book and travel the world and earn a PhD and mm-hmm. work as a be- behavior analyst. So otherwise, you know, I wouldn't have been able to do that. Like most, I I, I ask this podcast question every every interview I say, you know, part of my podcast goals are not to just help the kids, but help the parents and professionals. So what are your self-care tips? And, you know, wide variety of answers, you know, but I do, I do get a lot of sleep. Um, I do enjoy taking walks. I do enjoy hanging out with friends. Um, I don't enjoy exercise, but I know it's so important. So I am trying to, um, you know, join different activities to keep myself active. And I also have the financial resources to, you know, hire care, but I've also, you know, people are like, oh, well, that's really expensive. And, you know, to have a a child with autism, actually, 
Lucas is, because of my advocacy early on, I always had a lot of ABA therapy that was covered. I have a waiver for him now, an adult waiver that is, it basically covers all of his care. So you don't have to be wealthy to get care. You might have to invest a lot of time. You know, I went to two due process cases all the way up to federal court. I filed fair hearings and mediation. And, you know, over the years, I fought like I didn't have money to pay for things. Because, I mean, if you just pay outright, Mm -hmm. you will go broke. (laughs) It is very expensive. And part of why I was fighting is I was fighting for the... English as a second language mom in the city who didn't have a car or a computer. It's like, if this is the nonsense they're pulling with me, I'm going to advocate not just for Lucas, but to raise the bar for all kids. Mm -hmm. So in terms of self-care, even though autism, like circling back to, I never, ever want to hear the word autism again. Now Mm -hmm. I hear it, type it, speak it, say it many, many times a day it doesn't stress me out. I feel like I'm on a huge mission to change the way autism is detected and treated and to change the way delays are treated by empowering families to really take control and not leave it to the professionals and not think that there's no hope to turn things around because there always is. Thank you for doing this work, Mary. It's in your mission. I mean, that's, it's so needed, necessary and your heart just just burst through as you talk about it. You know, and I think in some ways even your self-care is pursuing what's meaningful to you professionally and and your identity and your goals. And sometimes we miss that in self-care because we think it's it's got to be like, you know, softer and and you know, smushy, but it it can be like driven that way because yeah. that helps us stay aligned with ourselves and our identity. And so then we don't burn out. But Yes. The fact that you could do all of that and go through that for Lucas and then advocate for these other parents and teach them how to do it. And um, people can't see us on the video, but your your book is so beautiful. Turn autism around. Everybody should go get that on Amazon or their local bookstore. It's really great. And I just, I really acknowledge you for coming here because you have so many other responsibilities, but to bring some awareness about autism intervention um, and ABA science to our listeners is huge. And I really hope people will look at your course, whether they're parents or clinicians. It's great. MaryBarbera.com. Tell everybody where they can find you, like all of the other things. Is it Mary Barbera on every every platform? Yeah, MaryBarbera.com or on, um, if you want to get to my Facebook, MaryBarbera.com forward slash Facebook, forward slash Instagram, forward slash YouTube, forward slash um, pretty much everywhere, uh, either with Mary Barbera or Turn Autism Around. Yes. And also when you go to her website, this is super important too. She has a free autism 10 minute assessment for a child or client with autism. So, I mean, there's so many resources. Your generosity of heart and spirit is overflowing. So again, thank you for doing this work and helping children and families in our world. Yeah, well, thank you for helping me get the message out to mental health professionals, therapists, and all of your listeners. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Great, you're welcome. Thank you. What an inspiring guest. I was so happy to have Dr. Mary Barbara on the show today. Not all of us work with autism. Not all of us see clients who have autism, but I venture to say that even if you don't, in your personal life, maybe it's your family, maybe it's friends, in some way you have been touched by somebody close to you who has autism or deals with a family member or a kid that has autism. And I really hope that this episode will help you. Maybe you share the resources that Mary offers. Her website is amazing. Her videos are amazing. Maybe it's her book and that might be helpful to you or a colleague, Turn Autism Around. But what I'd really love is if you share with me what a takeaway is for you from listening to this and thinking about that person you know that has autism or has someone in their family with autism or someone you work with with autism? And how have you been touched by that in your life? 
send me a DM on Instagram or on Facebook. I'd love for you to join my community, the Heart Centered Therapist community on Facebook. And that's the best place to reach out to me. If one in 50 kids are diagnosed with it, like that's a lot. So this is really important. And I want to know how you're doing out there and how we can support you. So I hope you have a great day. I will see you next week. Thank you so much and keep being heart-centered. Bye for now. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, I invite you to subscribe and leave a rating or review. It really helps other people find this podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the links and resources mentioned. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.